0: Well, I feel like it's a wonderful blessing to be here in Gladys this week. I want to thank you for the invitation, and I want to invite you to, if I say something that I shouldn't have said, I invite you to correct me. I would like to say things this week that will edify and build up, convict me and you, the church, um... Gladys still has a special place in my heart, and I care about what's going on in the church here and so um, it's a little bit unique to come to a place that you guys know me, and I know you a little bit and so you know that's that's just okay. Um, so I hope we can be free with each other for the for the kingdom of heaven's sake and um <clears throat> I also wanted to thank you all for, a number of you sent cards to, to Indiana in, re- in remembrance of my dad's passing and reached out to me with your sympathy and made the effort to send a card. And I just want to thank you for doing that. Those were special. I appreciated that very much. There was one that was extra special. That was Esther Glick. <laughs> Esther, I want to thank you for the card that you sent. That was very special. I felt unworthy. <clears throat> I am thankful for, for your love and reaching out in that way. <clears throat> Just reminiscing back a little bit, um, I moved to Indiana when I was almost 23. So that was 1990. That was over 26 years ago, I moved away. And I, I hope <laughs> you've forgotten a lot of what you remember about me. Um, some of you know my journey and I'm not here to, to share a lot about myself but there is something I want to share with you tonight about myself um, probably some of you know most of you know that before I moved away I had experienced a time of rebellion and being away from the Lord and was actually excommunicated from the church here and was living in sin and then had repented, I was in Costa Rica for a while and, um, as a place for a new start, and came back to Indiana, and, or I'm sorry, to Virginia, to Gladys here, and I think it was 1988 I came back, and just as time went on, I began to backslide, and hid it from you. So I just, here I am tonight, and I just want to be open about that. You guys didn't know that, and it's something I never, I've had so many things to make right in my life, and to go back and say I'm sorry, and to make restitution. There's one thing I never did, and that was to clear with you that when I left in 1990, I had all kinds of sin in my life. And I said things like, well, I'm just, I'm just kind of discouraged, and you know, I'm, I just feel the pull of the old life, and, and I think maybe it would be better for me to move away, <laughs> That wasn't the whole story. I think it was um, Thanksgiving of 1989 that I was here. I was in this building at the Thanksgiving evening service, and after that service was over, I left and um, found my way to an old friend and bought some marijuana again for the first time in a long time. And and from then on until I moved, that was what. That's things like that. I've gotten involved in drugs pornography, uh, just, a, just a wicked life hidden from all of you, and coming to church and pretending that everything was fine. And I'm ashamed of that, and I'm also ashamed that I never I never um, came back to the church and made that right. Some of you were here when that was going on. So I'm here to tell you I'm sorry, and I ask for your forgiveness tonight, I confess that. And so, really, my move to Indiana was um, a Jonah move, relocating because of the things going on in my life. Relocating and hoping that it would take care of things. And so, that what I'm sharing with you now is that's the first half of the story. I'll have to, if you want any more, I'll have to tell you that later. But there, five years after that, after I moved to Indiana, I fell into the same sins and hid some of these same problems from my own wife. And so, God had to arrest me. (laughs) And I just, the other day, I went back and found the date again, January the 5th, 1997, was the date of my arrest (laughs) by God. And um, God gave me the opportunity to voluntarily confess, starting with my wife that night, and then on, there was just barrelfuls of confession. I guess I never made it to you. (laughs) Um, but things that I had allowed into my life there in Indiana that I had to make right. And you know, that night, I still remember that night laying there in bed and thinking, man, what will it cost me to really make things right? Well, I thought of the cost. It seemed, it was just about too big because it cost, um, it cost, the the, the cost was to, to humble myself and to confess and um, so in thinking of that, and, and so there's been a journey uphill since then, thank God. That's been just a little over 20 years ago. <clears throat> but I just remember there was two weeks there where it seemed like there was another confession the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and um, it was embarrassing. It was hard. But I believe it was It was necessary. And so in light of that, I guess this week, I asked Sam before we came this evening, what's the normal way you do here for invitations? You know, we sort of expect invitations at revival meetings. That's what I'm used to. I don't, um, and so I would like to, I think what my plan is, unless the Lord directs otherwise, is that the, at the end of each service, I would just like to open it up for confessions. And I think it does us so much good to just confess my need in front of my brothers and sisters. And the Lord, maybe the Lord will direct otherwise. I don't know if we will necessarily do that every night. Tonight I would like to just do that after the message. Just open it up and if God has spoken to you about something. And maybe it's not even connected to what I'm going to share tonight in the sermon. Just something you would like to share by way of confession or ask for prayer, whatever, here. You know, the Bible says... That God resists the proud, and to make a confession requires humility, doesn't it? I have to humble myself first before I stand up. And um, it, but it goes on to say that God gives grace under the humble. So I just would encourage you, if you have something, if God lays something on your heart tonight, to just be open about it and share. Before we get into the message, i just tell you a little bit more about our family. We have five children. Two of them are away from home right now. Shannon, our oldest, is down at Hillcrest. She's the receptionist down there. And Taylor, our next one, is at Maranatha Bible School. We're hoping to have him home in a couple of weeks. And then Sheila, my wife, Sheila, is in Floyd County for this week with the youngest three. And she is going to be homeschooling up there and hopefully coming down on the weekend with Alvin and Missy. Um, so I'm driving Missy's vehicle I brought that down and they will come down with our van later that's our plans I do work in an RV factory sorry about that, I'm making RVs um, helping make RVs I've worked there for 17 years that's my job I was ordained in 2007 so that's been close to 10 years now and um, that was quite a a journey because I was ordained during the Great Depression, I call it. <laughs> and uh, because we were going through something as a church, which may be similar to what you have gone through here. And um, so, as I share this week, I, I just want you to know, I'm not pointing a finger at those who are not here at Gladys anymore. Or am I pointing it at you that are here, okay? I just want to share the burdens that, that God has birthed in me, I guess, just from my own experiences, and um, there was a season in our church where a lot of the people left and I was freshly ordained and I just really grieved and struggled and tried, wished I could have put all the fires out and didn't know how to put them out. And it was very hard. But I guess one thing that I feel like I received through that time was just a burden and that is that I just... One of my burdens is that we would be a relevant church. That it really would matter in eternity to God. When he, when, he, when he saw what you and I did and the, and the time that he gave us, he would say, you know, you made a difference in my kingdom in those, those years that you spent there in Gladys or, you know, where I'm at, out in Napanee, Indiana. <clears throat> and not so much, I'm not so concerned about being relevant to the culture as I am being relevant to the kingdom. That's what's really important. And if I'm relevant to the kingdom, I will reach out into my culture and into my community, I will. But most important is being relevant to the kingdom of God. And so a relevant church, I suppose probably all the messages this week, however many they are, there might be a funeral here this week. (laughs) Um, But I suppose most of them will tie into that theme, a relevant church. I would like for us to memorize a couple of verses this week. And they are out of the King James Version. That's what I use to preach out of. I use other versions in my personal study. But uh, I'll be using the King James in preaching this week. And so <clears throat> if you don't have a King James with you tonight, maybe you can print off these verses and bring them along and we'll say them together each evening and then maybe we'll have them memorized. Maybe you know them by heart already, but they're out of John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38. So I would invite you to turn there and if you don't have the King James wording, we're going to memorize it in the King James. Is that okay? Because <laughs> that's what I have. So you have to do what I have up here. Uh, and then if you don't, if you don't carry a King James the church you probably have one at home somewhere you can just print off those verses and we can say them together maybe you can bring a copy tomorrow night so we, everybody have they, um, be saying it the same way but I would like for us to memorize verse 37 and 38 of John chapter 7 and I want, I want to start halfway through the verse in verse 37 where it says Jesus we're going to start with that word and we're just going to, um, this will be our, our theme verses for the week. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, the, the songs that you sang and what Brother Sam shared, uh, talking about the streams of, of water, I think that fits with these verses here. So let's do, could we just stand together? Would you all stand with me? And let's start with that word Jesus. And let's say that in verse 37 and then down, finish out with verse 38. All together. <clears throat> Jesus stood and cried saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And then let's say the reference John 7, 37 and 38. All right, you may be seated. Thank you. <clears throat> Tonight, for an opening message, I would like for us to meditate upon the life which is in Christ Jesus. That phrase is a direct quote from 2 Timothy 1, verse 1. That verse says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. So that tells me that hidden within the person of Jesus Christ is a germ of spiritual life. That if you will eat it, It will totally change you. We are not born with this. We are not born with this germinated seed. We are not born with this spiritual life, but we may possess it if we partake of Jesus. The death of Jesus has the capacity to change your destiny. The life of Jesus has the capacity to change your very self. And when this life, which is in Christ Jesus, becomes our possession, we cannot not be changed by it. This evening I would like to ask you the question, do you indeed possess this life? And in the message tonight, I would like to describe the qualities of this life and what qualifies or disqualifies us from receiving it. Turn to John chapter 1 for a text for the message this evening. The title for the message is out of that verse in Timothy, Life which is in Christ Jesus. John chapter 1. Verse one: In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Have you ever noticed that the the Gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke they're all kind of a narrative; they're kind of a story, and they they start out by sharing, um, you know, the things that Jesus, the, the, the the circumstances of his birth, and the circumstances of his life. Can you imagine John, an old man, and when he decided to write this book, what would you write if you had been there? When you go to pick up your quill, I just imagine this old, long-bearded man going over to the lamp and picking up the quill, and what is he going to write? And this is what comes to his mind first. In the beginning, I just can imagine the reverence that he had in his heart as he, As he remembered being with Jesus. And he calls him the word. Verse 3. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made. That was made. In him was life. In him was life. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Now drop down to verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 16, and of His fullness, have all we received, and grace for grace. In the beginning was the Word. Jesus is the exact representation of who God the Father is to us. Jesus, it says there in verse 1, that in the beginning was the Word. So Jesus was already there. And then somehow God the Father worked through the son to create the world. <clears throat> the word was with God. Jesus is not the Father. Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. And the word was God. So it's talking this, this word word here is not something I'm here to try to explain all of that why John used this term why did he call him the logos the word of God. <clears throat> But I just know he's talking about Jesus, right? That's who he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus. And then he goes on to say that Jesus was God. And he's not saying Jesus was the Father. He's saying he's divine. He's the begotten Son of God. He's deity. The Word was God. He has a divine nature. He had a divine nature. All things were made by him. So... Genesis says that God, in the beginning God created, and what was God the Son. It, it makes that clear here in John chapter 1. <clears throat> what really struck me as I looked over this passage again is that little phrase in verse 4. In him was life. In him was life. So here were you and I in this world. We, we did not have this life. We did not possess this life. We had physical life but we did not have the spiritual life. And so, God the Father wants you and I to possess this life that is in Christ Jesus, this life that is hidden in Christ Jesus. It's in there. In him was life. Jesus is self-existent. He exists independent of any circumstances outside of himself. He possesses that kind of life, and you may possess the very same thing. Whatever Jesus had, you and I can have. So I just come back and ask you that question again. Do you indeed possess this life? Jesus Jesus possesses eternity. It's part of the, you know, if we could, if we could be a doctor, I see Brother Dan's not here this evening, but you know, if he could dissect this life, what all ingredients would he find? He would find godness in this life, right? He would find deity in this life. And doesn't the Bible say something about being partakers of the divine nature? So you, when you eat of it, you, you, you begin to take in this life. Do you believe, if you're a Christian tonight, do you believe that within you, somewhere in there... You know, it's not, if you would cut yourself open, you wouldn't pull out a little nug and say, oh, there it is. There's that life. But it is in there. It's in spirit form. It's in there. It has, it has godness in it. It has eternity in it. So if, if you have the life which is in Christ Jesus, if that life is, is in you, you have eternity inside of you. You have You have the divine nature inside of you. You possess His life. Jesus doesn't just have life. He is life. What does it say in John 11, verse 25? He said, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. If you want a little homework assignment, look at the book of the Gospel of John and just look at this word life. I think it's used about 14 times in this book. And I think almost always it's talking about the spiritual life that you and I may possess. Verse 4 says, The life was the light of men. Do you know what it's like to be outside of the will of God? And the things of God seem to you, they're boring, they're, they're distasteful, they're, they're, they're a drudgery. And, and when you really surrender, when you really truly surrendered, suddenly the life became the light and it made sense to you. You wanted to do what was right. You had desire for the things of God. I believe that that's one of the first things that God gives to us when his life germinates within us, and that is desire. How much holy desire do you have? It might determine how much life is in there. You know, and I think it's really, it's whatever Jesus did, you and I just need to do the same thing. And I think, you know, he says over and over again in the book of John, he talks about, you know, the only reason I'm here is to do the will of my Father. That's the only reason I'm here. But whatever God says, whatever my Father says, that is what I do. And I, did he, do you think he desired to do his Father's will? I think he loved it. <laughs> I think he had tremendous desire to do it. We only see one time in the Bible where Jesus' desire was was not the same as his father's. You know the prayer he prays about, um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think Jesus wanted to do the will of the Father. And yet in the garden, we do see that one instance where he said, you know, Lord, if it be possible, take this away from me. In other words, I don't want to. But nevertheless, even though I don't want to, my will will says, I will still do it. And I think that's often the way it is for us. We come to the Lord, God gives us something. How can we live for him without holy desire? It is almost impossible. I would say it is impossible. If you're out there tonight and you're trying to live for God, you're trying to turn this crank and you're trying to, you know, you don't really have much desire, but you're trying to live for God. That's very hard. That's it's just that's not sustainable. But there are times, maybe where our desire may flee apart. From, may, maybe it'll. Maybe the desire has fled. And it's at those moments then that we need to be like Jesus in the garden and say, you know, God, all my want to is gone, but my will still works. So I just say yes, because I know. I know what is right, and I know what is good, and so my will is going to just say yes. But I question where we're at. We hardly have any desire. When the desire is so low. I just don't think that's what the the life that is in Christ Jesus, if it's really my possession, I don't think that's what it births in me. If my desire is gone, it didn't come from the life which is in Christ Jesus. The life was the light of men. Is that how you and I find it? That the life, I now possess this life. You know what? My whole life makes sense. It makes sense to say no to the things of the world and to say yes to the things of God. That makes perfect sense to me. Because I'm looking ahead. I'm looking beyond the end of this life. I'm making choices now because I'm looking at eternity. That, that life has brought this light to me. And that's why I make the decisions that I do. And I see God the Father from heaven... Sent You know, loving the world so much, sending his only begotten son from far away. <laughs> How many light years away is heaven? I don't know. And Jesus wants you and I to possess this life. It's not that hard. <laughs> it's just putting down my flesh and saying yes to God. And so verse 11 says, he came into his own all the way, however many miles it was. <laughs> leaving All the glory of heaven and all that he had. I don't understand all that. And he came into his own. Why? You didn't realize it, but he walked in your midst, just hoping that you would reach out in faith and take a hold of his life. He he brought it close to you. So you could possess it. And it says in verse 12, <clears throat> or verse 11, he came into his own, his own received him not. He had, the, he had the most amazing life within him. You know, you and I have to get to the life. <clears throat> he came into his own, his own received him not. But as many as did receive him, <laughs> to them gave he the power or the right. To become sons of God. When you become a son of God, you take possession of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Do you think that when the life moved out of him into you, that suddenly he had less life within him? (laughs) You know, you better get to him quick. It's been 7,000 years he's been handing out life for however long it's been. No, 2,000 years. (laughs) No, he doesn't possess any less life. When you take possession of it. And you can become a son of God, daughter of God. So we don't just get his inheritance. And it seems to me like American Christianity today focuses so much on the inheritance. You know, your sins are forgiven and you can go to heaven. And that's true. But what about the life that you can have now? What about that? You don't just get his inheritance, you get his life. What should that life be doing? Jesus said in John 10, verse 10, here's another another word, life, in John, in the book of John. It says in John 10, 10, I am come that they might, I am come. Remember it said back in verse 11, he came unto his own. Now John 10, 10 says, I am come that they might have life. That's the main reason he came. And that they might have it. A little trickle at a time. (laughs) Is that what he said? No. That they might have it more abundantly. You and I have the human nature. In our humanity, it's, is it wrong to be, um, is our human nature, is it bad? <laughs> I mean, we talk about the flesh. I mean, we live in the flesh, right? We're talk, it depends what you're talking about. When we use the term flesh, we're talking about our carnality sometimes. But it can also mean just our humanity. And our human nature is not necessarily bad. But our humanity will team up either with our carnality, which is the flesh, to take us down. Or our humanity can team up with God's divine life to take us up. as many as received him. Even to them that believe. And so, how is it that you and I, if you possess this life tonight, how did you get hold of it? How did you take possession of it? Verse 12 says how we took possession. Even to them that believe on his name. It's faith, it's believing. You know, today, it seems like we tend to instantly, when people talk about, oh, yes, oh, I believe, I believe, and, and, and we tend to, or I tend to say, you know what, the Bible says even the devils will even tremble. So you better make sure that you have a saving faith and not like, not like the devils, <laughs> because their faith is not a living faith that will save them in the end. Is that right? So there is such a thing as a saving faith. It's a faith that acts. It's a faith that moves. It's not just a mental ascent to say, oh, yes, I believe that Jesus died and I believe he existed. It's not that. It's more than that. But it's interesting to me that Jesus didn't even, or John, he didn't have to qualify all that. And explain all that to them, And I'll make sure, even when he says, even to them that believe, he doesn't say, well, and I'll make sure that it's the really the real belief and it's the real faith. He didn't say that. I think he knew what he meant. But it was a real saving faith. You know, the thief on the cross didn't say the sinner's prayer, did he? He just said, Lord, remember me. But it was a saving faith. And he instantly, I believe, possessed the life that was in Christ Jesus. Jesus said, today, this moment, as soon as you close your eyes, you're going to be with me in paradise. Thomas, when he, I just imagine him falling down on his knees and saying, my Lord and my God, I believe. That was a saving faith. And Saul, when he was struck down on the road to Damascus, and he says, Lord, what will you have me to do? The surrender of the will. But it's faith. And We can, we can talk about what all the ingredients are of faith, but it comes down to this. This is how you, faith is the spoon. It's the transport that, 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 that reaches out and dips that life that is in Christ Jesus, and and you partake of it. It's by faith. It's the vehicle that carries his life into us. And what happens then? When the life moves in, it describes it in verse 13. Which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Something did come in. Something real came in. Some spiritual seed did come in. And there is a spiritual germination that only God can do. He births something in our lives, in our hearts. Jesus said in John 5, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my words, and believeth on him that hath sent me hath everlasting life. You see how that verse brings, connects believing, and life together. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. The instant we exercise saving faith, we possess the life that was and still is in Christ Jesus. And now it has become your possession. In verse 14, it seems to me that John is reminiscing about. It's like to me, I look at verse 14 it says, it's like he pauses his thought. He's, 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 he's writing these scriptures and he pauses his thought and it says, and the word is made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. You know what the life looked like when it was in the possession, within the possession of Jesus. <laughs> wow. We beheld his glory full of grace and truth. That's what this life is supposed to look like. Jesus modeled for us what it's supposed to look like. He was full of grace and truth. And then, verse 16, now John says what it's supposed to look like in you and me. He says, Of his fullness have all we received, of his fullness. And so I come back to those theme verses that we read. What should his life look like in you and me? You know, I know we have our, our times of discouragement and we, we have our low times. And, you know, am I supposed to be just jumping up and down and shouting hallelujah all the time? Well, I don't do that. But I come back to those verses that we read, and Jesus then describes what it's supposed to look like. Those verses that we read that we're going to memorize John 7. 37 and 38, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. It's the real, present, ongoing possession, the presence of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of Jesus, the life of Christ Jesus within you. Does that describe you? I had to think of a, I don't know if I've ever seen this happen, I've heard of this, of a child being outside by the water faucet. And, you know, mothers always say things like, you know, don't put beans in your ears, and don't don't play with this and that, and don't do that. And the child turns on the water and picks it up and decides they want to drink. And all of a sudden, you know, the cheeks get big and the eyes get big and this water is going in, it's coming in, a lot of pressure and it needs to go somewhere. Where is it going to go? You know, if at that moment you could spiritually cut a hole in the belly and out of his belly would flow rivers of living water. You know, It's it's so much pressure, it has to come out somewhere. And to me, that's what he's describing. That's what our life is supposed to be. If I really possess the life that is in Christ Jesus... That's what my life should look like. And I don't need to stand, I don't need to jump up and down and, 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 and wave my arms, and, 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 but if you hang around me long enough, you're going to see a pressure in a good way that the, the, the life that, that is in Christ Jesus, that is in me, is sque- it's like squeezing a ketchup bottle. You know, what makes the ketchup come out of the bottle? It's the pressure. And it will, something comes out. And I know we express ourselves in different ways. (laughs) And there are some people that are very quiet, but when they do speak, there is a power there. There's just the life it's obvious the life of Jesus is coming out when they speak. Amen? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. God wants to infect the world. Through you. God wants, you know, we talk about putting on Jesus, dressing ourselves with Jesus. And the Bible talks about being in Christ and so on. But I wonder if it would be better to say it the other way. Jesus wants to dress himself with you. (laughs) He wants to be dressed in your humanity. And as you go on the job, as you change diapers, as you go to your youth activities and go to school, whatever you're doing, he you're the face, but he is the life within you. It would be like a a neoprene glove, those fit pretty tight. If you could put one over your whole body, and I would look at Gabriel and I could tell it's Gabriel. I could see the shape of his nose and everything. I know it's Gabriel, but it's not really him because There's more on the inside that is Jesus Christ than than the skin and bones and flesh that's on the outside. I would like for us to think about, in fact, you can turn to this, Galatians 2 verse 20. I think Paul described, what I'm talking about here, I don't know if this is clear as mud or if this is clear as crystal, what I'm talking about here tonight, but Galatians 2 verse 20 puts in a nutshell what I'm talking about. What takes place in the life of a believer when he partakes of the life that is in Christ Jesus, when the life that is in Christ Jesus becomes his possession. Galatians 2 verse 20, I'm gonna read it out of the King James. It says, I am crucified with Christ. Now Jesus Christ really was crucified and he actually physically died, right? How are you and I crucified with Christ? Well, that reminds me of Romans chapter 6, where it says, We are buried, we are buried with him by baptism into death. So by baptism, you and I, you and me are in this verse, okay? You and I are crucified with Christ, and then I would add Romans in there, by baptism into death. Okay, this is the beginning of the life, okay? Nevertheless, he says, nevertheless, I live. I'm not physically dead like Jesus would. I'm still living. Yet not I. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. But Christ liveth in me. You see, that's a picture of that neoprene glove, (laughs) body glove. You know what I mean? What I just talked about with Gabriel there. That's what he... I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live physically. I'm still alive, yet it's not me. The life of Jesus Christ is within me. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, my ordinary everyday things that I do every day, getting up and going to work every day and teaching school and whatever else I'm doing... That life, my physical life, my humanity has been totally changed by the life that was in Christ Jesus that I now possess. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. This this is describing how it's supposed to work. My life, my everyday human life has been is it's it's controlled by the governor of the life of Christ Jesus that is that is that is in me. It regulates everything that I do, it regulates everything that I say, it regulates the way I think, it regulates the way I spend my money, it controls everything. I have been overtaken by the life which is in Christ Jesus. So I come to this question at the end, and that is this. Why do some Christians not demonstrate the life that is in Christ Jesus? Why is that? Turn with me to Numbers chapter 14. I just want to look at one more scripture here tonight. <clears throat> This is the story of the Numbers fourteen. This is the story of the the twelve spies had been sent out, and they come to the land of Canaan, come to right up to the edge. And, I, and you've probably heard other people compare this as well. That the, the like we think of the three three locations mentioned there, in, throughout this setting. One location is Egypt. That represents when you and I were living in sin, before we were Christian. We were slaves in sin. Okay, that's Egypt. And then there's the wilderness, where too many of us are at, too often. <laughs> we've been, we've been, we came out of Egypt, but we're not in Canaan yet. And we're wandering around the wilderness, and we're not really, the truth is, we're not really experiencing the life that is in Christ Jesus, which is which would represent being in Canaan. Am I? Do I never have a struggle in Canaan? No, it's not that. But theres I've been possessed by the life that is in Christ Jesus, and it, it helps me. I'm, I'm governed by something within that, that helps me through the trials and the things that I face. And so here these people are. They're standing on the brink of entering into this life, Canaan land. Let's see what happened to them. And all the congregation lifted up their... Voice And cried, and the people wept that night, and all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel, of the, of the church at Bethel. They fell on their face and they said, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were of them, that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. Canaan land. If the Lord delight in us, that he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. This represents what should be the normal for a Christian. Only rebel ye not against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before All the children of Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed among them, I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. You know, sometimes it seems like that some Christians are willing to just wander around in the wilderness and be held up by something and saying, Well, at least I'll have heaven in the end. I hope that's true. But I just noticed here in verse 12 where God said, you know what? If they're going to do that, I'm just going to disinherit them. Because that is not what I've intended you to experience. There's a land of Egypt where sinners and unbelievers are slaves to sin. There's the wilderness where I am saved, but there's just a trickle of life. It's barely present. And there's Canaan, which we may possess. God's desire, uh, Caleb and Joshua said, God will give it to us. Now, why did they not make it in? Verse 9, neither rebel. So there is disobedience. He says, Don't disobey God, neither fear. What was that fear? Isn't that unbelief? I came across this acrostic the other day. How was that now? I was thinking about sharing that. By the way, there's children's class tomorrow night. Um, acrostic for fear. False evidence appearing real. <laughs> Isn't that what, they, what the children of Israel experience right here? So, was there sin that they were afraid? No, they didn't believe. It was unbelief that kept them from entering in. False evidence appearing real. <clears throat> Many Christians seem to have left Egypt, but have never really entered Canaan. And what, are, and what is the reason? I know, and I just want to say this again. There may be some of you here tonight that have heavy burdens. And I don't, want to, I don't want you to think that I'm telling you that that means you're not experiencing the life of Christ Jesus because you're burdened down with something. But sometimes I wonder if we're so busy struggling in the wilderness that we're struggle huggers. <laughs> we, you know, there's something that's quenching off that life. And really that flow out of his belly, that's just never my experience. And there's something there. And it might be idolatry, which that was one of the biggest sins of the children of Israel. But I think even before that one was simply unbelief. Unbelief. Did these? Did, in this chapter right here, did they not believe that God existed? Was that their unbelief? See, in Hebrews it says... But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in, not enter into this life, because of unbelief. Did they not believe that God existed? I don't think it was that. They believed God existed, they just didn't believe that he would deliver them. And so when we wrestle with unbelief, I don't think probably none of us here really wrestle that, is God really there? Does He really exists? Maybe there's a few. But it's more an unbelief that will not act on what God is asking me to do, and then, then it becomes obedient, disobedience, but it began with unbelief. Or it may be an unbelief that will not rest. And what God has already done. Unbelief kills the life. Are you presently living without disobedience, without idolatry, without unbelief? And if you are, then I think you have it. Sometimes I think we have it, we don't even believe it. In closing tonight, it's common today to ask the question, how's it going in your Christian life? Perhaps a better question is, is the life which is in Christ Jesus present in you? Jesus said in John 6, 53, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. The life which is in Christ Jesus is intended to be your possession. We eat, we partake, we ingest, we take in the life which is in Christ Jesus by faith. The ongoing exercise of obedient faith is the spoon, the vehicle, that carries the life of Jesus to me and makes it my possession. How full is your reservoir tonight? How full, how plentiful is the flow coming out of your heart? Are there obstacles or limiters of disobedience and unbelief in your life? Is there a flaw? You know the answer to that question. Jesus told us what it should look like. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Let's bow our heads for prayer, and then I just want to open it up if anyone has something to share. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for these dear brothers and sisters. Lord, you know if there is someone here tonight, that the reality is there's hardly a trickle going on. There's something there. There's a hindrance. Lord, I just pray that you would settle us or unsettle us. It would not be me, but it would be you. Show us where we're at, Father. Thank you for what we can possess in Christ Jesus. And I just pray that we will possess in fuller measure the beautiful life that Jesus had and he said that we can have it as well. I pray that as this church possesses your life, that it'll make a difference when we come to prayer reading, when we, I don't know, there's so many ways, Lord. But it'll be transformational. So God, would you work in our hearts this week? I'll be sure to give you the glory. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.